I think Donald Trump himself has come to believe, and I do believe he believes in the idea of the imperial presidency to a degree, because he surrounded himself by a lot of people who strongly believe in imperial presidency. Roger Stone is one of them. That whatever the president does is legal because he's the president. And whatever the president does is acceptable because he's the president. Whatever the president believes is true is true. And whatever the president believes is false is false. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. A few people have noticed that Donald Trump operates as if he inhabits the world of professional wrestling, an arena characterized by kayfabe, the fact or convention of presenting stage performances as genuine or authentic. My guest today, Shannon Bo O'Brien, who teaches political science at the University of Texas, has written a book about this. It's called Donald Trump and the Kayfabe Presidency, Professional Wrestling Rhetoric in the White House. We had a good conversation about how the twists and turns in her career put her in the position to notice this nexus and put together the book. You should listen. It might add a new layer to how you think about Trump. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Shannon Bo O'Brien. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Shannon. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Shannon Bo O'Brien. I am a assistant professor of instruction in the government department, actually as well as the civil engineering department currently at the University of Texas at Austin. I got my PhD in 2007 at the University of Florida. And I primarily specialize in American politics and uh, American presidency in particular, though I also do some stuff in politics and history. Where'd you grow up? Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville? Yeah. What kind of family? Political? Um, not really, no. Uh, no. Uh, they have gotten more, like, over the years, but no, not really. Not a political family at all. Um, both my parents are teachers. Uh-huh. What were you like as a college student? As an undergrad, I was a really good B-plus student. I liked my classes. My path to academia is a little different than a lot of other people's. I, I took a different path, I guess is the best way to put it. What happened was I did two years at Furman University down in South Carolina, and I liked it. Uh, but then I came back up to Louisville on break for the summer, and I got a summer job. And I'm really good at like technical bean counting types of things. I wound up working for a travel agency doing their, their visa work. And they said, well, if you stay, we'll, we'll pay your tuition 
100 percent in full. And I'm like, and you just bought a human being. Well, sarcastically, but yeah. Uh, so I that's what I did. And I went to school full time and they paid my tuition and I worked almost full time too. So were you still at Furman? Or no, no, no. I transferred you know, to University of Louisville. Got it. Yeah. I, I transferred back to University of Louisville is what I did. I picked political science actually because the semester before, uh, before I transferred to University of Louisville, I took a class and I kind of liked it and I did really well in it. And 19-year-old me uh, thought it was because it was easy. Older, 40-ish-year-old me realizes now that that's because I just kind of had an affinity for it and it, it just worked really well in my brain. I wound up getting my bachelor's and the travel agency came back and said, well, you know, if you, you do your master's with us, uh, we'll, we'll pay 100% of your master's. And I was like, okay, that works for me. So I started the master's program as a terminal master's at the University of Louisville in their political science department. And I took the coursework and I was okay. Both of them, I was okay, but I was, you know, I was working full time. I was doing other things and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I just knew I didn't want to work at the travel agency for the rest of it. I knew that. I had a friend in the master's program, uh, Melissa, and she had taught in Budapest, Hungary. She said, well, uh, they're looking for a teacher for next year to teach English, conversational English. I didn't have anything else going on except for like this never ending future of processing visas at a travel agency. So I said, sure. I went over there and I didn't speak the language. By about December, I realized a bunch of things about my life. I, I realized I, I really missed school. I have a sense that when you're teaching English over there, you learn a few things beyond what you miss over here. I had uh, seen or heard you talk about having watched American TV over there. Yeah. Tell me what you were watching. I really missed American English is one of the things I missed. Because over there, they primarily are taught British English. I watched a lot of Cartoon Network, actually, as well. And uh, the station that ran Cartoon Network at night ran uh, TNT, which uh, did movies. And then on Friday nights, the TNT actually ran wrestling. And so I started watching lots of wrestling, professional wrestling, American wrestling. Which is not collegiate wrestling, a real match like my brother did. It's... A show. No, it's wrestling. Yeah, it's it's the theatrical type of wrestling. And I didn't grow up watching that. It wasn't what I was interested in. But I watched a full year of practically of wrestling. It was really a touchstone to the things I was missing. And after a while, I, realized I, I, I missed talking to people and listening to people who, who talked like I do with, I hope, just a slight Southern accent. <laughs> what attracted you to wrestling beyond the language? Was there more to it? What I found in life is that the more you learn about almost anything, the more interesting it becomes. Well, the theatrical nature of wrestling was kind of neat. It was how all this stuff was over the top and how it was portrayed as absolutely true. And in any other setting, you would look at the stuff and go, that is nuts. What the heck is going on there? But they they have all these contrived fights and frustrations and alliances that on one level 
are utterly ridiculous, but on the other level, they totally make sense within their storylines. And it was interesting to watch how they sell that to different crowds and how they, they posture. And it was really neat. But you came back to the U.S. after missing it, and I guess you decided to get a Ph.D.? Yeah, I applied to applied to a bunch of programs over Christmas break. I got, got accepted uh, to a couple of them, and I decided to go to the University of, of Florida. And I came back, and I was a much better Ph.D. student because in many ways I figured out what I wanted to do. I figured out what I was interested in. I figured out that I like school. And I was also not working. Was Beth Rosenson teaching there? Uh, not my first year or so, but yeah, she was actually on my dissertation committee ultimately. Oh, she went to grad school with me. Yeah, she's a great person. Actually, I had her the first semester I think she taught. Uh, I had her for American political development, which was actually a really important thing for me too, because when Beth was teaching that class to a degree, I don't know if I've ever told her this, but it was sort of like I found my people. Because I love politics and I love history. And it was like, oh, oh, that was that was really an important class for me because it was just it was just wonderful. And and she was and she's very good. She's very good at what she does. How long did it take you to get through that program? It's these PhD programs in political science are notoriously slow. Uh probably a little longer than average. I started in 1999 and I got my PhD in 2007. And part of that's because I did get married in 2003. I met my husband there. He's a, he was in the civil engineering. He's a professor of civil engineering. And then as soon as I defended my prospectus in, I think, 2004, I hopped in a car and drove to Austin, Texas. I wound up teaching in this department before I finished my PhD uh, from 2004 to 2007. I was teaching like two classes a semester here while writing my, uh, my dissertation. What does an assistant professor for instruction mean? I am actually non-tenure track faculty. Uh, we'll find out in a couple months if I'm going to be an associate of instruction because I've actually went up for promotion this year. But it's just it's just the non-tenure track uh, track here, and it just means that I uh, I'm not research faculty. I'm teaching faculty, and part of that's because I did follow my husband before I had a PhD and I came here. So. Yep, didn't go on out on the market in the normal way. I made a choice that I wanted to put my marriage first. And I don't regret that choice at all. My husband, he did his undergrad at Columbia and he has two masters and a PhD from Stanford. And he was at the time in one of the best departments in the country. I think it probably still is one of the best departments and subfields in the country for what he does, which is um, construction engineering and within civil engineering. I didn't want to have a two body problem. I didn't want to live in a different location than my husband. Yeah, that's terrible. We didn't know if we wanted to have kids or not. We don't have kids. We weren't certain at the time. But I wanted to prioritize that. And I felt that was really important because I was 30 when I got married. And I figured if I'm going to do this, I don't have to be married. I wanted to be married to my husband. And it was best just to, to, to do that, I guess. And I can still do what I want. I mean, I'm at a great university with an amazing library, and I've got great colleagues uh, in the department. I enjoy what I do. I love, I love the classes. I love my students. So I, I'm not on tenure track, but I, I think I've done okay. What do you generally teach? I teach a bunch of stuff. I teach uh, intro American politics a lot. Those are the big classes, often uh, the two to three to 400 person classes. 
I teach urban politics, which is cities and suburbanization primarily. You know, how people came into cities and the different patterns over time. I teach social movements, which uh, my master's degree I did a lot of social movement work on. So I, I talk about and, and teach how all, all the different elements of social movements, not so much each individual movement. I, I actually teach a lot of the theory of it. And then each week, because I use a reader instead of a textbook, we go through the class and I talk about different elements of social movements. And what is a social movement, you know, versus a cult, you know, versus just other types of, of movements. I teach a class on American presidency, which really, uh, I used to call it before Obama was elected from George to George, what the heck happened? Because that just sounded, it was fun to call it that. Then I really, I, I walk through the presidents and because the, the executive branch changes because of crisis. It doesn't change because people sit around and go, oh, let's go do this, this thing. It changes often because of things that happen. And then I also teach a class, and I just finished it this semester, called Politics and Film. And that class I teach how politics and how societal changes often influenced by politics, you see it reflected in film over the decades. Or you see how film reacts to politics or politics react to types of things going on in film. That's a pretty varied workload there. Yeah. I guess I have to confess that I learned a, a new word recently, kayfabe, and the connection between wrestling and Trump read your book about it this weekend. And I wondered, when did that connection occur to you first? Tell me what kayfabe is and then and then tell me when it first occurred to you. Sure. Uh, well, kayfabe's a wrestling term. And what it means is, the best way to describe it is you pretend everything's real in wrestling. And that even though things might be utterly ridiculous or they might be can look contrived or they might you know, seem silly, you behave in a way that it's you, you are reacting to it or interacting with it. Like it's absolutely truthful. Like it's absolutely real that there's no, no falseness about it. And one of the things I tried to discuss in the book is what I believe Donald Trump is trying to do is he's trying to man manufacture his own reality. And by manufacturing his own reality and creating, you're able to control the norms inside that reality. And within that manufactured space, you can set the rules and the guidelines and the, and the entire atmosphere of it. Within kayfabe, kayfabe is presented like the world is real because in that space, you're, you know, you're, you accept that magic is real and like the Harry Potter movies Within the world of kayfabe, it's that this is the world that we're in currently, and it is real. But whatever's happening in front of you is absolutely legitimate, absolutely uh, truthful, absolutely sincere. And so you might have this, this wrestler in front of you wearing a cape and spangles, and that's absolutely normal. And he might be talking about some sort of ridiculous plot or contrivance to do this thing that if you were in your normal life, you would look at this and roll your eyes and say, what, what? But within that world, you're behaving like that's absolutely real. Trump's relationship to that industry is long and deep, right? Yes, 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 it is. 
Talk about that. Well, he he brought WrestleMania four, I believe in 1988, to his properties in Atlantic City. And by many accounts, he he watched that first year kind of just enthralled, sort of like mouth open, just just all in it. And he liked it so much, he brought it back the next year. And since then, he has been sporadically on WWE or WWF, which is now WWE, and is actually good, close, personal friends with the McMahons. The owners of that. Yeah, the owners. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vince and Linda McMahon. He's good friends with them. And he has these established relationships with these people and has has a character on wrestling. He plays a character named Mr. Trump. Uh, The highlight, I believe, and you can sometimes see clips of this online, was in 2007, he and Vince McMahon uh, had a hair versus hair match and the loser got shaved, their head shaved. And uh, Vince McMahon lost and Trump shaved his head in the middle of the wrestling ring. And I watched that. What I was certain of was that it was the plan, of course. Oh, yeah. There was no risk, zero risk to Trump in the reality world. Absolutely. Of having his head shaved. Right. The whole thing was scripted. Yes. And I tried to, I think, write this. The best way to think of it as scripted is it's scripted the same way a ballet in many ways is scripted that you know what you're going to do, but there's still this live element and things can change. So people may not hit the mark where they're supposed to hit the mark or people might be a little off, but we know how it's going to conclude. We know how it's going to progress. But when did you make this connection that, Hey, Trump's behaving in a way that fits wrestling, which you'd watched so much in Europe well, I, it was during the primaries. When I came back and I started my PhD program, I, I didn't watch wrestling. I didn't have time to watch wrestling. So when Trump started running for president, I started, you know, it was one of those things where you like sort of your antenna pop up a little bit, those internal antenna, and you're like, hmm, that's interesting. I was like, I've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? And then it was like, oh, 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 this is, this is wrestling. And then I, I remembered kind of, he, he had this relationship with wrestling, but I, you know, I didn't watch the hair versus hair match. I, you know, I, I wasn't, wasn't really aware. I recently watched the setup for that where Vince McMahon and Trump kind of meet each other in the ring and sign the document with a huge crowd, relatively huge crowd, just to dramatize it, just to set it up. It was a pageant. Yeah, it is. And what they're trying to do when they're doing that pageant, they're trying to, they're basically trying to, to sell it, to sell it to the crowd. The larger the applause, it doesn't matter if they're, they're applauding or the booing, the louder it is, the more you're selling it to the crowd and the more you're getting over, which is actually a term as well. The cheers and boos are two sides of the same coin. You, you want them both. So what do you think Trump learned watching wrestling? What, what specifically did he take from that that he uses a, as a candidate and a kind of a candidate in the office? I think he learned a lot of things. For example, in wrestling, the more forcefully you say something, the more truthful it is. 
you never apologize. Apology is a sign of weakness. Apology is a sign of not being truthful or being soft. So you never apologize uh, because this is all theater. You always double down. You never back off. You often antagonize people. You stereotype people. You use often very, very stark language, sometimes often racially charged language. In wrestling, it's the good guys and the bad guys. Do you do a lot of that name calling? Oh, absolutely. Uh, name calling is is the bread and butter of wrestling. It's character and competence attacks are some of the most common things in wrestling. Verbal aggression is very, very high in wrestling. I tried to talk about this in the book, is that even though I think the Republicans often have an allergic reaction when you say the word Solinsky and refer to his book, Rules for Radicals, Trump is essentially using the rules for radicals as president. Some of Alinsky's tactics fit very well within this, within this idea of wrestling, which is you, you personalize attacks, you use ridicule because it doesn't have a good defense. You pick strategies that your audience likes and you stick with them. You know, you try not to be reasonable. You, you, you want to keep people off guard and off balance as much as possible. I remember you said something like you pick a target, you freeze it, you personalize it, you polarize it. Yeah, that's actually Alinsky. Uh, that's not me, but yeah, I, I yeah, did quote no, him. No, you were quoting Alinsky. Yeah, yeah, I was quoting him. Yeah, and I, I see that that's exactly what he does. That's what wrestling does. To what extent in wrestling does the audience understand this notion of kayfabe and kind of like really they get that it's a game. They just enjoy going along with it. And to what extent do they think it's real? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? In some ways, I think it's both. There's this idea of the smart fan. And I think a lot of the fans of wrestling, wrestling has a very, very strong working class appeal. And it always has. And wrestling, and I, I tried to talk about this in the book, wrestling, other people have written on this. I believe it was Jenkins that wrote on this, maybe. Talk about how often people who work in often repetitive jobs or jobs that are kind of mind-numbing, and but they have a lot of frustrations and they can't take those frustrations out in their, their lives, would often go to the wrestling arena on Saturday nights or Friday nights and be able to yell and scream, you know, for or against the good guys and the bad guys and, and sort of allow them to have this emotional release in the space. Sort of this cathartic moment where they could go out and yell and emote and then they go back to their lives. I think there's something important there to a degree because I think a lot of the fans of wrestling understand that it's scripted. I mean, I think maybe the little, the very, very young fans perhaps don't. I think most fans of it understand that it's theatrical, understand that it's scripted. But I also think they take a tremendous amount of joy at times. I don't know if joy is the right word. Satisfaction might be better of watching the reactions of people who don't think it's, who don't understand that this is, this is just part of a performance. And I think they, they like getting one over on other people at times when other people see this and they go, Oh my gosh, seriously, is that what's going on? They understand this is part of a show. They're insiders. Yes. 
And it sounds like by direct analog, people watching Trump as a candidate or campaigning from the White House, they understand what he's doing. I think so. Or do they? Yeah. I, well, I, 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 I think to a degree. And, and they like seeing the people who are outraged, partially how they feel about those people, maybe, and partially because they know that they're getting outraged by something that's theatrical rather than true. I think so. I mean, a lot of the things I've seen where you see a lot of, particularly in the early parts of the Trump presidency or after, right after he was elected, people talking about owning the libs. They thought it was more interesting or more fun or more satisfying that other people were upset about this success. And for me, politics at the end of the day is about good government. I may not agree with every political official out there, but I always want them to be making the best choices they can in a point of view that they think is the best thing for this country. And I can live with policy choices as long as I think they're coming from that place. And a lot of the rhetoric that I saw was more about this ownership rhetoric. They didn't care about good policy. They just cared about making other people angry. And that felt very rustling to me. We saw a lot of this anger and we saw a lot of people that were so excited about the success of this candidate that spoke to them. I mean, Donald Trump has lots of flaws, but one of the things I think he, he did well, and I think, I think one of the things he does well, even though I don't think he puts the policy there, but he puts the rhetoric there, is he does understand that there's a lot of people in this country that feel like they've been ignored and left behind. And I think a lot of his popularity was rooted in the fact that he went to a lot of those places and he said, I hear you. And I understand you. you're angry. A lot of those people just wanted to, want to be heard and they wanted to feel like they were, that they matter and that they're listened to in society. That counts a lot for his popularity to a degree. There's a very interesting discussion in part of your book about whether or not Trump has developed a confusion between what is reality and what isn't, what is opinion and what is fact. His niece, Mary, wrote that he seems to be the only person who can gaslight himself. Does he now think there is voter fraud because he's been saying there's voter fraud? Did he believe it in the beginning? Like, how can we distinguish when he continually says something loudly from a performance from his belief or does it matter? I think it does. Maybe it was like four years ago now. I was at our National Political Science Convention, APSA, and uh, James Fifner, Dr. Fifner, who's written a lot on the presidency, probably one of the best living presidential scholars today. I was watching his presentation and he said, Every time President Trump says, because he actually tried to research this, in case you're curious, uh, says, many people are saying this, or, you know, I've been hearing from lots of people. There were no sources. He can't find any instances of when President Trump says that, of where it's coming from. It's a tell for a lie. Yeah. And one of the reasons I used, because if, if you read my book, you noticed I used a lot of really old references. I used uh, Albig, uh, which was one of the very first public opinion books that was printed in 1939. And one of the reasons I did that 
and I was the first instance I really saw a good articulation of that argument, was the more times you repeat something, the more times people think it's truthful. So if you repeat something enough, or you say something enough, people think, oh, well, they may not remember exactly where they've heard it, but they'll go, I've heard that before. And then the more times you say that, the more truthful people believe it is because they they remember picking it up somewhere. And, and that's often very troublesome too. If, if, if you're an opinion leader or people trust your opinion and you say things like that, people, people trust what you're saying. Getting back to whether or not essentially does, does Trump believe in his own press, I, I don't know. I, I think to a degree he is. Trump, I think, because of his training in wrestling, thinks of space like theater space. And the problem with theater space is that in theaters, everything's hyperbolic. You know, nobody falls in love over the course of five minutes like they do in a play. Nobody gets antagonisms within two to ten minutes that make them want to become murderous. Generally, that's not the way things work, but they have to do in plays because the play only lasts for two hours and it's this compressed space. So characters are overdrawn. Things are, are over the top. And they have to be for storytelling purposes. And I think what Donald Trump has done is that's the way I think he sees the world. He sees all this in wrestling terms. And it's almost like an egg. He's like taking the theater, this manufactured reality space of the theater, and it's like an egg and he's cracked it. And he's turned it loose into the wide world. And by turning it loose into the world, we have this massive confusion of norms and acceptability and what is what is right and what's not right. And you see people behaving in public in ways that are they normally do. And I think it's because they've taken these theatrical norms of this hyperbolic idea and they've inculcated them and because Donald Trump has given them a tacit okay for that. And then they get upset and confused when they realize there's political consequences or or legal consequences to these types of actions. I think Donald Trump himself has come to believe, and I do believe he believes in the idea of the imperial presidency to a degree, because he surrounded himself by a lot of people who strongly believe in imperial presidency. Roger Stone is one of them. That whatever the president does is legal because he's the president. And whatever the president does is acceptable because he's the president. Whatever the president believes is true is true. And whatever the president believes is false is false. When I was watching some of his campaign rallies this fall, there was a couple things that, that I noticed again, I guess. One is that he knows, he's self-conscious about the fact that it's a show. He'll tell people like very explicitly, I'm saying this because it's more entertaining. It would be boring if I acted in a normal way. I have to do this like for you. The other thing is the relationship with the truth is that he doesn't feel tethered to it. I remember watching him say, you know, Biden wants to take away your Social Security and Medicare, which is not the platform of the Democratic Party or of that candidate, but he feels like it's a legitimate thing to say as a campaign tactic. And there's a bunch of other things like that. As part of this game, I'm going to throw punches that are heavy, whether or not there's a lot of grounding behind them. Do you read it that way? 
and it actually is rooted in, in wrestling is it's the emotion of the performance. It's not the truthfulness of the performance. It's because in one of the things I tried to talk about in the book too, is all this idea of this retcon or retroactive continuity. Another word I learned from you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize that retconning. You gave an example about Nancy Pelosi after she tore up in February this year, she tore up his, the, his speech, right? Theatrically. And then you talked about how some people retconned it by placing it somewhere else in the narrative and making it look like she was disrespectful to something else, right? I was actually writing the book, uh, finishing writing the book right around when that was happening. So I was, I was editing those, those, those pieces back in. What happened was during the State of the Union, there was lots of, for lack of a better word, jazz hands elements where he had, you know, look, <laughs> this guy's, this, this soldier, he's come home. Look, his wife is so excited. We're going to give, you know, Rush Limbaugh a medal and we're going to give this girl a scholarship. He had all these jazz handy moments, which were kind of sandwiched between kind of an economic speech. What they were going to do is the Republicans wanted to take this speech and use it essentially as a victory lap in the, the news cycle for the next 24 hours. And so then what Nancy Pelosi did, because the, the House leadership get their copies of these speeches to read, uh, something I forgot to put in the book, which I meant to put in the book, and it was a mistake not to put it in, was uh, I believe it was Ryan, Tim Ryan of Ohio, walked out and he tweeted at that moment. He was like, he's, he's like this was like, he walked out of the, the State of the Union going, this is like a wrestling performance. And I printed that out and I forgot to stick that in. Darn it. I know. I, it, 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 it annoys me to this day that I, it was a clear slip. But Nancy Pelosi, at the end of the speech, just took her copy and tore it up. And by doing that, she had this nonverbal cue of what she thought about the speech that completely derailed what the Donald Trump and the Republicans wanted to do for the next 24 hours. So then what happened was during the speech, one of the other jazz hands elements was they had one of the last living uh, Tuskegee Airmen there and they honored him. And so somebody the next day took that moment where he was honored, took the, the section of Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech at the very end. And they, they spliced that together to look like as soon as Donald Trump honored this guy, Nancy Pelosi tore up the speech like she was completely dismissing this man being honored. And Donald Trump retweeted that, I believe. And, and by retweeting that, he's adding veracity and truthfulness to a manufactured space or a retroactive continuity, a retcon moment, which is, and if you're not familiar with the term, what retcon means is when you you go back and you you rewrite things or you do things to make them make sense. So in movies where they didn't plan to have a sequel, but they do have a sequel, they'll go back and maybe rework the narrative to make it make sense. In soap operas, they do lots of retroactive continuity where they will change the storyline to fit the current thing and pretend like it was always true. Is that substantially different than just lying about the past? Well, because you're moving forward like it's absolutely truthful. You're, you're moving forward and you're saying, well, this is the truth. You know, this is, you're basically, you're creating a, a new narrative 
you're going backwards to create a new narrative so that it makes sense in the current time. It's a false reality is what it is to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you do in the book that I found intriguing was you look at some examples of other public figures that preceded Donald Trump and, and preceded professional wrestling that use some of the same techniques to get followings, Rice, Brinkley, Coughlin. Can you give a quick capsule of each of those and why you chose them? They were all larger-than-life figures in their day. They were all very, very popular. And all of them kind of had an axe to grind with the people in charge. Dan Rice, actually, I also selected because one of the arguments I try to make in the book is how much wrestling is rooted in circus and how much it's rooted in theater historically and how all these these behaviors and mannerisms do come come out of circus. Uh, Dan Rice was a clown. He actually was a clown in the circus, but clowns back then were not clowns like they are today. Clowns back then were much closer to like a Will Rogers where they would interact with the crowd and talk to the crowd. But then what happens is when you see the, uh, the, the spring of nations in 1848, uh, which is a democratization movement in Europe, uh, people got a little worried about this excessive democracy or possibly occurring among crowds. So the clowns stopped interacting as much and they kind of became, um, they pantomimed more. But Dan Rice was extremely popular, very, very popular man. He was an orator and in a lot of these performances. He's also where we believe the term like jumping on the bandwagon comes from. Rice was so popular that local politicians when he came into town would jump on his bandwagon when he was like going around the circus. That's where we think that term came from and also riding on the coattails because they would try to ride on the popularity of Rice's coattails. And he, he actually uh, was involved in getting Zach Taylor to a degree elected. And then he decided he wanted to run for office himself. And what was it that he did that made him so popular? It really was his oratory, I believe. He would often, he worked both sides of the Mason Dixon line and he would shift his rhetoric to be appealing in whichever whichever audience he was at at that moment in time. When he ran for president, briefly, he, he, he made politics his opponent. He basically attacked politics and said it, you know, it was the problem. And then one of the things I thought was real interesting, and I think I included it in the book, was that when people would talk about him in unflattering terms in the newspapers, he would attack them as malicious liars. You know, he'd attack the press for not being truthful to him. And he he made all sorts of claims. So what was the story with Brinkley? Brinkley was a quack, uh, for lack of a better word. He was a medical quack. John Brinkley got his medical degree. He rose to fame by implanting goat testicles into basically early Viagra into men to increase their virility and claimed that it worked. And what happened is he, he also created his own radio station. And it was one of, the, one of the largest ones in the country. And he blended like religious and news and medical advice. People would write in. And what he did is he created his own pharmacy. So he wouldn't tell people to take things. He would tell people to say, well, you need to write to my pharmacy and order number four. 
and other people would listen to it as well. And they'd say, oh, well, if his, if this guy had this condition and I had this condition, well, I'll order number four as well. And he got extremely wealthy doing this. Actually, at one point, the uh, American Medical uh, Association came, started coming after him for, for these business practices. And that so angered him that, that he, he ran for governor. And I believe he ran for governor of Kansas, I think. And he wound up uh, almost winning. Uh, the ballots, uh, he had to do write-ins, but all the ballots that his name was slightly misspelled on got uh, discounted. And it's widely believed now if those have been allowed to account for immaterial errors, he liked a little one. And he became one of the most well-known media personalities of his day. He began doing this. And he ran for office out of anger, which was a lot like the way Donald Trump ran for office. He, we believe he, he ran for office as a combination of wanting to get, negotiate a better uh, contract for The Apprentice. And he got really angry at the White House Correspondence Center when they made fun of him. Although he tried to run before, you know, Reform Party and things like that. So He played with it. I mean... When I was doing research for the book, I mean, I ran across it's over in the Vanderbilt archives because they they have the uh, the TV archives. There is a piece from him as early as '88 at the Republican convention saying, "Oh well, I might run. You know, I, I could. I'd consider it." He bounced around and floated the idea for a long time, but I, don't, I think what really pushed him over was he got really angry over being made fun of at the correspondence dinner, and then. I think what he wanted to do is he wanted to negotiate a better contract for The Apprentice. And then what happened was when he started running, it got legs. And then he just kind of kept rolling with it. It's quite a story. How about uh, Coughlin? Well, Father Coughlin uh, was a was Catholic priest. And he actually pretty much pioneered talk radio. He had over about, I think it was, what was it, about 40 million listeners a week. He He gave weekly sermons. He would often put in a lot of political and social commentary there. While he was okay, I think, initially with the, the New Deal, he, he later on started really attacking the New Deal. And then he started endorsing political candidates as well. And this actually culminated in Coughlin pretty much helping create a political party to run against Roosevelt. They created the Union Party, and they ran um, the senator from North Dakota, and Coughlin was really the guy doing the campaigning out there. He was dominating it. And Roosevelt really never went after him because uh, Roosevelt knew that uh, for his New Deal coalition, Catholics were a huge part of his New Deal coalition. So he never wanted to risk alienating them by attacking a priest. So uh, ultimately, Coughlin's party didn't deliver, but he really eventually continued his attacks on there and started really talking about Nazism and fascism in a very, very positive way. And then when he started accusing um, people who were Jewish of actually starting the Second World War, that's when the Catholic Church finally kind of put their boot on his, his throat. And they ordered him to either stop it or be defrocked. And when he was um, given the choice of those two, he decided to, to stop it. He didn't want to be defrocked. And so the Catholic Church took away his, uh, his, uh, his radio pulpit for the remainder of his life. What do you think the significant popularity of those three characters says about their followers or about the public and their susceptibility to kind of the kind of performances that they made? I think it tells us that people like to be entertained in politics. I think that 
if there is a compelling character there or a compelling person there who can weave a good story and keep people's attention, they are far more interested in that story. And that's a lot like wrestling, I think, too. They're, they're willing to suspend their disbelief of reality in favor of a charismatic leader, regardless of what they're saying. I think you see it with Coughlin. Coughlin was, many of the things he was speaking about were running directly counter to a lot of core American values. And people were really okay with that. You have Brinkley, who is talking about implanting goat slivers of goat testicles in people and giving them a, what ultimately turned out to be colored water to cure these, these things about them. And because a friendly voice that seemed like it wanted to help them was, was talking directly to these people that felt like they were ignored, they voted for him in droves in Kansas. They felt that he, he spoke to them. Brinkley, when he, they, they shut him down on broadcasting in the States, he wound up creating what's called a border blaster. So he just went directly across the border, like literally steps inside the Mexican border and created one of the largest transmitters. I believe that one could reach to New York City. And so he, he wound up living down in Texas for a while and he had a pool that was tiled in swastikas. People were okay with this uh, because he was charismatic. Dan Rice... Because he was charismatic, uh, and this is around the times of the Civil War, but would simultaneously endorse and condemn slavery, depending on which night it was and in which arena he was in. But because he he told a good story and people just liked to hear him talk and it sounded good coming out of his voice, people were, were willing to, to go along with whatever he said. And I think a lot of people want to be entertained. There's a certain segment of the population that are persuaded by the theatrical nature or their entertainment value rather than the, the politics of the political policy. And that's what fascinates me. What do you think the, the connection you've made with wrestling and plot line says, if anything, about whether Trump will try for a comeback in 2024? I am deeply suspicious that, because he's already said he will, Trump likes to do teasers. Just He loves sweeps week, and we often refer to them more in politics speak as trial balloons. I think he probably thinks of them more as like bumpers or teasers to, to gauge uh, reactions. He's already in, implied that he might skip the inaugural just to, to hold his own rally to declare himself a candidate for 2024. I think it's an attempt to stay relevant. I think it's an attempt to try to control the tone of politics. I think he might. Some days I think he does, and some days I think he doesn't grasp just how quickly he's going to become irrelevant. I think he fears becoming irrelevant in politics, but I think he thinks that he can still stay relevant. Typically, the world, when you're out of power, moves on very, very quickly. He is a master of of holding on to attention. I doubt we're done with him, but I hope we don't see him back in power. I think what Donald Trump's ultimate downfall is actually is his age. I'm hedging because of his age. I don't think any of his kids have the same charisma. Probably not. Shannon, is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I had? I don't think so. I'll babble on if you let me. I learned a lot from your book. You know, it gives me a different, a little bit different lens on trying to understand him. 
Did you like it? I did. He attended that church, the Norman Vincent Peale Power of Positive Thinking Guy church all growing up, which I think is another part of what has shaped him. I've I've seen people point to that. I wonder if you noticed that or think that that might kind of interleave in with wrestling. Of course, everybody's the product of many different things in their in their past and their development. I, I I think it could. I mean, I I grew up Southern Baptist, and uh, Norman Vincent Peale was a was a big part of a lot of the um, the writings and things that we would have available. I think it does. I think for me, I think whenever I think about Donald Trump. That's actually not where I think, and I didn't include this in the book because there wasn't a really good way to put it, but what I often look at with Trump is he was the only child his parents sent away to military school. If you're a child in a household, and he had brothers and sisters, and you're the only one that they decide has to be removed from that household and sent to military school or sent away. What sort of damage does that do to one's psyche? What sort of damage does that do about spending a life trying to validate your existence or try to prove that you're good enough or prove that you're, you're okay or prove that you're important enough? Donald Trump was sent away and his siblings were not. And I think that did more damage to him as a human being than anything else. Although I've seen people who've been sent away who seem to grow a great deal from it. So people do, but often they get sent away because it's a family plan. Like your family, yeah, it's, it's for your growth family just, for them rather than punishment or something or, or behavioral problem. Right. Yeah. This is what you do or yeah. your siblings also go away, but he was sent away while the rest of them were allowed to stay. Yeah. And it wasn't a choice. Poor Donald. His brothers didn't go away. His other two brothers, Fred and Robert, didn't go away. His sister didn't go away. He was sent away. Well, Shannon, it's been an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, that's. I mean, I hope I hope that's enough for you. Like I said, it's plenty. Yes, thank you. That was Shannon Bo O'Brien of the University of Texas. Shannon is at Shannon Bow on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.